This Knowledge at Wharton podcast and videocast is brought to you by Wharton Executive Education. For more information on Wharton's executive programs, such as the Executive Development Program, Leading and Managing People, or the new High Potential Leaders course, please visit executiveeducation.wharton.upenn.edu. Although the subprime crisis seems to be showing some signs of easing, debate over what caused it, whether it could have been prevented, and how long it might last will continue for some time to come. Knowledge at Wharton asked Wharton finance professor Jeremy Siegel for his perspective on the latest economic developments. Uh, Professor Siegel, some people have described the subprime meltdown as kind of a perfect storm with a combination of events that don't happen at the same time very often. And that was rising interest rates and falling home prices and income sitting still. And other people think this was predictable and the financial institutions that were writing subprime loans and other risky kinds of loans were just ignoring the risks. Uh, Was this an unpredictable perfect storm or not? I think they were ignoring the risks. Um, I I think what had happened was that it was very profitable uh, to write these subprime mortgages. In other words, the fees were very, very high. And as long as the lenders said they could package it in a way that they could sell it to the public, well, then you got lending, you got financing, and uh, everyone, you know, nodded their head, oh, houses always go up, I don't have to worry. Uh, deep down, they may not have believed it, but everything looked so so fine and was so profitable. And, uh, you know, actually, I, I think this uh, this was a wreck uh, that, that could have been predicted. What, what, what I think was not predicted and underestimated uh, by the Fed and, and many others was that many of us, and I have to include myself, thought that these risks were spread, you know, among many, many different funds and investors and hedge funds and others who could afford uh, to take these risks. I guess what the shock was is that the the I banks and the banks and the regular banks themselves held on to this. We thought it was packaged and distributed throughout the economy, and I, I think that's what shocked us is that. That uh, the, I mean, I could see why these people created them for the profits, and I thought they got rid of them. Some of them tried to, but it was a little too late, and they couldn't, and they got, uh, they got caught holding them. A year or so ago, when when there were first problems and they were really confined to the subprime mortgage area, a lot of people were saying, well, you know, this is one of the great benefits of securitization, which has been growing so much in recent years, that that the risks are passed on to the investors who can handle them the most. Uh, And now you're starting to wonder whether this was really a mechanism for spreading the contagion around the world. Do you think that securitization has been a, a benefit in this crisis or a problem? Well, don't forget, mortgage-backed securities have a history going back 25 years of very little problems. I mean, it was an excellent uh, instrument. Uh, there was no problems with it. Uh, uh, the, the best people handled it. Its yield was a little over treasuries, um, but uh, good enough for, for people to want a financing in and helped our, our entire housing uh, industry. I, I think what happened was in the extremely low interest rate environment of uh, 2002, 3, and 4, uh, the people got very hungry for yields. 
And they said, oh, I don't want to accept 1%, 2%. I want to get a, a little bit higher. And they were willing to, oh, well, here's a, here's a security collateralized against real estate, against a home. That never declines in value. Hey, this is safe. We'll, we'll dice it and chop it and make sure that there are safe segments. And we'll only give the riskiest segments to, to people who want to really bear that risk. And everyone was under the illusion that all this was happening in an efficient way and going out there. And it turned out that it wasn't. It wasn't distributed enough. People got holding it a lot. Then they were holding our, their breaths. What was shocking is that many of the financial institutions kept on creating this even after they had trouble selling it. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of those institutions from Citigroup on down deserve the knock that they had because, uh, you know, uh, they should have known better. And, and, and they, they wiped out a lot of their own equity. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of head rolling has taken place. I feel not in the least sorry uh, that that happened. They've, they're, they're taking the hit. Now, what's your overall assessment of the way the Federal Reserve has handled this crisis, so starting with the subprime meltdown and then all of the ripple effects through the credit markets? I, I think on the whole... Excellent. Um, I, I think the innovative uh, type of, uh, of facilities, the term auctions facilities, uh, the lowering of the discount rate, the extension of the discount rate to iBanks, uh, and I even a- approve of the Bear Stearns rescue. I don't really call it a bailout in a way. It sort of was a, 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 a rescue more than anything else. Um, uh, have have been uh, very innovative and very appropriate and very timely. Uh, what I question is whether uh, Bernanke had to go down on the rates as much as he did and as quickly as he did. I think that that has worsened uh, some of these inflationary pressures that we now see in the market, in the commodity market, in the energy market, in the food market, etc. We do note that other central banks, uh, particularly the ECB, uh, has not lowered rates, uh, even though it has also been hurt by uh, the housing situation. They're standing fast against inflation. I think this is what's hurting the dollar and ultimately uh, hurts uh, us through higher prices of, of imported goods. I want to zero in on a couple of things you just said, because I think a lot of people, when they think of the Federal Reserve, immediately think about interest rates and the, this routine of cutting and raising rates. But in this case, there have been, as you said, some some innovations. And, uh, uh, for example, lending treasury bonds and taking mortgage-backed securities as collateral and things like that. Which of these, these uh, maneuvers have been the most innovative, in your view, and the most worthwhile? I, I think all of them uh, have been. Uh, 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 I, I think uh, the uh, again uh, there was a terrible shortage of treasuries because they were re- re- uh, call, regarded properly so as safe. Uh, securities and everyone wanted to driving their yields down. Here, uh, the Fed had a portfolio of seven hundred billion. It doesn't have to have those. And what it did was saying, "Listen, I will take some of your collateral over here, qualified collateral, in exchange for these treasuries." And this lowered the risk premium on some of those riskier securities, uh, raised the interest rate a bit on on these treasury securities, brought them more in line. That was very innovative. So very innovative to extend. Uh, the uh, uh, discount financing to investment banks and 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 broker dealers as well as commercial banks. Don't forget. I mean, we, we've uh, the Fed was founded almost a hundred years ago. Uh, 
and uh, and our world has changed a lot, and yet the structure of, of, of discount lending was almost always the same to commercial banks only. Well, iBanks and all the rest have become just as important, and, and we really have to bring them under uh, the umbrella uh, over there. I think uh, the rescue of Bear Stearns was an uh, important part at a very critical point in the market. And if you take a look, that was the low, March 17th. Um, risk premiums have gone down since then, not back down to what they used to be, but 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 down from there, uh, the market has bounced up over 10%. Uh, I, I think that that uh, that will be viewed as as a as a good there are there as a good move. Uh, all of these, I think, have been uh, uh, innovative. There there used to be a um, uh, a one point. Uh, uh, wedge between the discount rate and Fed funds. That was then lowered to a half last August and just a couple months ago down to one quarter. Again, uh, opening up the discount window for borrowing. We, All these features, I think Bernanke will look very good in, in history on following all those. Again, the only thing where he runs the risk is with all those measures, did he have to move rates down as aggressively as he did? We will have to wait and see whether that, uh, how that plays itself out. Now, some people argue that a repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act a few years ago, it allowed financial institutions that had been separated to merge into one another's areas of business. And uh, and, and in, as a result, doing business in ways that were no longer really regulated by anybody. Are, are there gaps in the regulatory system now, or should should it be unified in some way, or are we okay with all of these different agencies looking at different You know, it's of- hard to say. I, mean, I, I Personally, I think the same crisis would have hit had there been Glass-Steagall still on the books uh, or not. Um, I mean, when you, you take a look at these, were very profitable loans. Um, they were, they were you know, mortgage banks, savings banks, and others. We could talk about the fact that why didn't Greenspan and other regulators speak out against these no-doc, no-income, 110% loans uh, that were pumping up uh, home prices? Uh, very definitely. Um, th- there was regulation on the books, and room to to uh, to come down on that. Uh, again, Greenspan himself admits he thought the risk was more well distributed throughout the world's financial system and didn't realize uh, how concentrated it was. So there was a lot of misestimates. I don't really think that Glass-Steagall really uh, played a major role. I think this crisis uh, would have proceeded otherwise. The only way it wouldn't have proceeded if the regulators came down and said, no, this is contributing to a bubble. Uh, and by the way, let me mention the following. Had they done that, everyone in retrospect said, oh, that's what they should have done. There would have been yells and screams from the housing industry, from all those people who want to buy homes uh, that weren't homeowners before. Uh, don't think it would have been politically simple to really shut this uh, process down because, uh, you know, a lot of people got, uh, got a lot out of this. And uh, at that time, they thought they were getting uh, great bargains uh, in, in their mortgages and they would have been very resentful had the government stepped in at that time. So it would have been much harder than a lot of people think. All of the discussion of remedies or reforms or uh, uh, whatever sorts of follow-up is necessary here seem to break down into, into, into sort of three broad categories. There are people who say 
do nothing. The markets are solving this themselves. They're not writing these subprime loans any longer, uh, for example. Uh, then there are those who say, all we really need to do is ensure better transparency. That we, a lot of people really didn't understand what was going on with some of these mortgage-backed securities that were moving out into the marketplace. And then there are others who say, well, we need a much more rigid set of controls and monitoring over what hedge funds and other sorts of uh, players in today's market are doing. Where along that continuum are you? In a way, some of these things are uh, closing the barn doors after the horses have escaped. I and mean, right now, no one is riding subprime. We don't have to have regulation against 110% no-doc loan because no one's giving it and no one will for many, many uh, years to go. Well, you know, we have to remember that in a, in a free market economy, we are going to have bubbles of various sorts. I mean, we, we, we can't just, you know, if you want to move to 2% growth and no, no, uh, no, no fluctuations. You're going to have to mo- move to a socialist economy, and no one wants to do that because uh, you know that will obviously harm um, all, all the productivity. Uh, you've got to, We've got to learn how to accept them, but we also have to learn how to devise, as I think the central bank has, ways to mitigate the crisis. I think we're going to get through this with a mild recession or less. Think about what happened 60 years ago. 70 years ago, the Great Depression, when a similar set of circumstances hit, uh, the Fed didn't come to the rescue. The whole banking system went up. Unemployment went to 25% GDP contracted uh, by uh, uh, one-third. I mean, uh, you know, these are magnitudes we can't even imagine uh, today, but it shows you how bad things uh, can be. Um, you know, my, my feeling is, again, I mean, there has to be transparency, and particularly if we're going to bring investment banks back uh, under the fold that they could be rescued, we have to make sure they have enough of uh, uh, risk capital, just like we do the banking system now. So in, in a way, um, uh, we, have to, we have to make sure. But I also would not put an end to hedge funds where, you know, qualified investors know the risk, um, you know, and will move into the markets as they think. I do not believe that they contributed to this. I think that, that as I said, the forces were very different that contributed to this problem. We still want the free flow of capital. We all benefit uh, from that. We just want to make sure that we have a regulatory system that will minimize some of the uh, the worst uh, uh, snowballing of the shocks that could come from uh, normal fluctuations in these markets. Well, thank you very much, Professor Siegel. Thanks for having me. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.